one that I am uh, enjoying and delighting in, uh, not just the study of the book, um, but just the truths that it is unpacking and revealing in my own life as we move forward, uh, as we pursue Christ together uh, from this first book written uh, in the Bible. And I don't think my Prezi is up, so let's make sure that's up there. Um, there you go, Job. Job chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 13 down through verse 22. Uh, there's, there's, it's certainly going to take us some time to get through the first two chapters of Job, uh, this kind of introductory prose, before we get into the poetic nature of the majority of the book and, uh, and soak in it and work our way through it. And so we're coming to this moment. We've just left the throne room of heaven, which has been turned into a kind of courtroom. Uh, Satan has leveled his accusations against Job directly and against God indirectly. We'll remind you of those in just a moment. And this is the first kind of present presentation of evidence. And so if you think of Satan, the accuser, the adversary as a kind of prosecuting attorney, he is presenting his first evidence uh, that Job's love isn't real and neither is God's. And, and the way he's going to go about this is frankly, one of the most devastating stories you could read. This isn't a myth. This isn't a legend. This happens. And, and so it's actually very difficult to even imagine. It is profoundly difficult to put yourself in this position. And yet, like every story, the power of a story is to find yourself in the story. And so we are intended, particularly those of us who know and love Jesus, and you're here this morning, and, you've, and you're a believer, and you very well may be here this morning, and you don't know Christ. And so I'm not saying that it isn't for you. You're going to learn a lot about who God is this morning. We rejoice in that, and we're glad that you're with us this morning. Um, but particularly for those of you who call yourself Christian, who've repented of your sin, put your faith in Christ, you are intended to find yourself in this story. So Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, I'll read down through verse 22. The word says this, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older, oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, or charge God with wrong. I was telling my wife I was sitting this week studying, wrestling with this text. And when you're studying the Bible, 
you can drift into, I don't know if you've experienced this, drift into almost just an academic mindset. Uh, words become words to study, phrases, grammar, and structure, and culture. I, I spent hours even this week just reading of Near Eastern culture and understanding where these groups come from. And, and so you can approach it in a very academic way, but uh, most of you know me well enough to know I'm never satisfied with that. That, that bugs me. That, that's important. I love that. But, but what would this really be like? It's difficult to imagine. Uh, it would, I told my wife it would be like me sitting in car line waiting to pick up our daughter, only, only to get a phone call that says my wife and my son from a state trooper have been killed in a car accident. And while I'm on the phone, it's buzzing from a number that, that shows up as District 5 bus, and I hit that answer, and they're telling me that my son traveling home from Spring Hill was in a horrible bus accident, and they need me to come identify the body, only to see ambulances pulling into the school to watch my daughter's body be wheeled out because of some school shooting, only to have that die out, to have a phone call from a deacon saying, we just don't want you as our pastor anymore, you're fired. To get a call from my next-door neighbor who lives across the street from Chris Gara saying, Steve, I, I don't know what to say, I just pulled into my own driveway, your house is literally burned to the ground, there's nothing left. How do you even process that? Like, that's so unfathomable, isn't it? It's so beyond our comprehension that that is exactly what happens here to Job. You know, I think it's easy to love what you think something or someone is until you see the reality. It's become this trend out there of showing what tourist destinations actually look like. And so it's easy to fall in love with a picture of what you think the Eiffel Tower is until you get there and see the massive crowds or, or, or a beautiful Rio de Janeiro beach or the Great Wall of China or the Taj Mahal, but then you're greeted and confronted with reality and we have to ask the question, do we just love the fantasy of what we think something is or do we actually love the reality of what th something or someone is? In romance, Benjamin Franklin famously said, before you get married, keep your eyes wide open and after you get married, keep them half shut. It's the idea of be fully aware, fall in love with what the truth is, and understand living life together with someone can be very, very different. Different. We have even phrases that reference this. We call it the honeymoon stage. They tell pastors when you go to a church, you usually got about a one-year honeymoon phase. Uh, everybody loves you. Everything's going okay. Watch out after a year. Um, famously, there was a movie called The Seven-Year Itch. It references the fact that the greatest prevalence of the breakdown of marriages, and they do it in a comedic way, but happens about seven years in. And a resistance and an irritation with others grow. We understand the reality then that it's one thing to love what we think something or someone is. It's completely different to love what something or someone actually are. Satan's accusations have all centered on the reality of the love that Job has for God. And ultimately, the love that God has for Job. Are these real loves or are they imagined loves? Is it put on or real? Will it endure or will it fade? Now, the ironic thing is Satan has to use God's definition of love to even argue about love. When God proved his love for humanity, he sent his son 
into a wicked world to die for sinners who are undeserving. It was sacrificial without expectation of return. It was, it was initiating on, on his end, not on our end. Any love we have for God is only responsive. Satan has to argue out of God's definition of what love is, that it's genuine and it's sacrificial and it's freely given on some level to even make his accusations. And yet we have this grand court case from the opening arguments of Satan and and now this round one of evidence that concludes with the first kind of verdict. What happens after this is almost an appeals case that takes place. And what you're going to see this morning in these verses from 13 through 22 are two large truths that will point to what I think our big takeaway is this week. And first of all, the truth will be that Job actually has integrity. Satan's argument has been that Job loves God for what it gets him. I love the gift more than the giver. Take away the gifts and you take away the love. And this first section is intended to prove to us, no, Job actually has integrity. As the Hebrew rabbis used to say it, what was on his outside was really what was on his inside. Secondarily, it's going to argue that Job's understanding of God's providence, of God's sovereignty, is right, it's helpful, it's tied to his love of God. So we're going to learn this week this truth. The only true love for God is loving God for who he truly is. Not some fantasy, not some myth, not some made-up God that maybe uh, is most common in I think two forms we see in America today, prosperity gospel, i.e. love and follow God for what he gives you, or, or a pathos kind of gospel. And what I mean by that is, is for, for well-to-do people, uh, they're not allured by the prosperity gospel. They already have what they need. They already have their wants. Uh, um, sociologists have discovered if you're making around $70,000 $70, a year or so, raises don't dramatically increase your satisfaction in life. So the majority of Americans, are, frankly, are not looking for more money that the prosperity gospel guys are arguing for, but they're looking for a pathos or an emotional well-being. Uh, come to Jesus and he'll fix your marriage. Come to Jesus and he'll fix your parenting or your relationship with your children. Come to Jesus and you'll feel more settled. Come to Jesus and have your best life now. Come to Jesus and enjoy life. And both of these are arguments, love God for what he gives you. And that's Satan's argument. That's his accusation. Job only loves you for what you give him. That's to create this idealistic, frankly, grandpa in the sky who gives you butterscotch. I don't know. It just seems like all the older grandpas in churches I grew up in gave butterscotch. Thankfully, Mr. Booth gives better candy here. And it's this idea. Well, the question is, do we really love God if we've made him or imagined him to be something that he's not at all? And so we want to learn this week that the only true love for God is loving God for who he truly is. And let's look then at the test. This is how Satan brings it to bear. He's made the accusation. God has given him the freedom. And so he launches into this test, and there's several things we want to learn about this, this kind of test. I just want to walk through it a little bit here to help us see exactly what's going on. Job, Satan says, Job is this gold-digging blessing seeker who only loves God because of what God gives him. And, and God is an insecure, unlovable, manipulative creature who has to control people who's unworthy of the love he receives. How can these accusations be answered? They can only be answered by taking everything that this wealthy man has. Satan's accusations are false, but the means by which he goes about to prove them, while wicked and evil and painful, are true. 
You could actually think of it the other way around. What if someone has all their needs? What if, what if, or excuse me, what if someone is impoverished and, and has nothing? And what if they are devoid of anything and, and yet they love God? And you see them praying to God to give them the bread, that, the daily bread that they need. And so when they pray the Lord's Prayer, they really mean, I need my daily bread. And they're praying that God would provide resources so their children can go to school and, and a job and, and everything just seems to be going bad and, and they're sick. And so they're sick and they're impoverished and they're in pain. They're anxious and they're worried and they're fearful. How would you test if their love for God was true? Wouldn't you give them everything? And you would ask, well, does their love grow cold when they no longer have to pray for daily bread? They no longer have to pray for clothes on their back. They no longer have to pray for health. They no longer have to petition God and, and look out for his kindnesses because all their needs are provided. And in fact, if we were to see an impoverished person raised up from their poverty, their anxiety, and their, and their ultimate loneliness and see them suddenly have provision, and we were to see them suddenly grow cold, wouldn't we argue that their love wasn't real? I think we would. And so God has introduced Job into this, and the only real test is to strip him of everything. And maybe the reality is that's actually a commentary in some degree on what we call westernized, apathetic Christians who have everything. Their needs are met. Now, maybe you don't have the car you want to drive. Maybe you don't have the clothes you'd want to buy. But you don't hurt for food. You don't hurt for clothing. You have access to health care. It's easy not to need him. And so the test would work either way. It just so happens that in this test, with this man, it happens from the direction of taking everything that a wealthy man has away from him. And so we see it in a couple of ways, and, and the way the narrator lays this out is just genius, and we don't want to miss the beauty of the way he unpacks the story. We begin with verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. Now the narrator has already told us enough that we know exactly what's happening here. This is firstborn son's birthday. And everybody's together. All ten of them are together enjoying time in his house. Don't take this as some kind of warped, weird um, God took the children through Satan because they were a bunch of reprobates because they were drinking wine in their brother's house. If you want to go there, then find Jesus at the wedding ceremony of Cana making water into wine and ask why all those people don't get wiped out. This is not some weird, paganistic, uh, orgiastic, wicked moment. This is a family celebrating together. And we're, we've already been introduced to them. We see family unity. Your question might be, why isn't Job there? Because frequently, these kinds of celebrations in this culture would last for a week or more. They could last up to about 10 days. And, and the feast would build, and the celebrations would build, and the celebrations would build. And lots of times, they would start on the special day, like a wedding or birthday, and then they would extend out from there. And kind of as the party is waning, on the last day, if there was some very special guest, that's when they would show up. And it's easy to know why. Because if the celebrity shows up, it's going to rob everybody else of the celebration. So... Honestly, this is probably the start of the celebration. This is cultural. The Bible doesn't tell us this detail, but just I think it helps us to picture it. And Job is probably in the process of preparing the sacrifices that he's going to travel on the last day of the celebration to be with his children, he and his wife, and they're going to show up. Why would they, because Job's the celebrity. Like, let's just be honest. It may be his firstborn son's birthday, but Job's the wealthiest, most respected guy in the region. Job doesn't want to rob the attention rightly deserved by his son. 
And so this is his firstborn son's birthday. We're introduced to them. We know that Satan has gone out from the presence of the Lord to afflict them. And so in a storytelling way, your heart and my heart immediately should do a little bit of a hiccup. Uh-oh. What's going to happen to the kids? And he doesn't tell us right away. He builds the story. Instead, he turns to this messenger. A messenger to Job comes in. The oxen were plowing. The donkey's feeding beside them. This puts it at early winter. Late fall, early winter time. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And so you have this terrifying moment. But the terror only increases because when he goes next, and so we have this raiding party that's come and slaughtered everyone and stolen the animals. While he was yet speaking, there came another, before he could finish that phone call, his phone's already buzzing, the fire of God fell from heaven. This is lightning. And so what we have here are sheep grazing. <coughs> and there are occasions of this specifically that we have in Australia that we know of this kind of event happening. Lightning hits, it hits the pasture, and just fire goes. Wind whips it. Um, I made a comment last Sunday. I was sitting in my office uh, a week ago Tuesday, and I look up and I see all the fire trucks pulling in the church parking lot. I thought somebody was pranking us. I go outside and there's all this smoke in the backfield behind the office building was on fire. It was spreading. It's crazy, right? Uh, we don't know what caused it. Um, I was not outside playing with matches, right? Um, probably somebody walking through flicked a cigarette or kids set a fire. We don't know. We don't know. But it had not been long. And that fire, the wind just whipped it. And it goes down about 30 yards or, maybe, or so into the woods headed towards Concord Place firefighters got here they were here for hours putting it out it was it was crazy praise god it didn't do any permanent damage to the church building or or facilities and um this kind of fire when it would hit the lightning would hit you can only imagine the terror of the sheep and the shepherds this is just an ugly scene this guy shows up smelling like smoke probably burn marks on his skin is this fire the sheep, it was recorded one event in Australia, they couldn't outrun the fire, the flames. They're all burned up. And so you kind of have this moment where it's getting worse. But it moves on. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups. And this is, this is a different one than even the Sabaeans because we have this strategic plan of kind of an invading almost army showing up. Made a raid on the camels, took them. And then struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. This guy shows up probably bruised and bloody, falling on the ground out of breath, barely made it aloud, just frankly PTSD from watching this wholesale slaughter of all of his friends. And then the narrator comes back. Listen, we can lose cars and things and belongings. Uh, the thing people most struggle with in, in a house fire is the loss of memories and photos and records. When I was a little boy, our TV blew up, blew up upstairs. It was one of those old tube TVs, blew up and literally blew fire across the room. My older brother and I were outside playing, little, little guys. I was kindergarten, and so he would have been about seven years of age, and he was headed inside to go into the house to get a toy that we were going to play with. And it just so happened, by God's providence, my mom was coming out of the house, snatched him up. And I remember vividly standing outside watching my house burn. 
as a kindergartner. To this day, this is how weird this is, to this day, when I smell, because the house burning is a very peculiar smell of all the electrical components and the wiring, and it's very different from somebody just burning leaves or trash. To this day, I get this sick feeling in my stomach when I smell it. I know immediately what it is. It's just this terrifying moment of like escaping, but, but we were so glad because my, I remember my dad pulling in and grabbing us because my family was safe. Your sons and daughters are eating and drinking. Wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness. It's a desert wind, a Sirocco wind, struck the four corners of the house that fell upon the young people, and they're dead. How does he know they're all dead, and how does he know he's the only person in a house collapse? It doesn't take rocket science. The only way he knows you've dug through the rubble. So this man shows up dirty and bruised. Probably has tear streaks down his face. How do you tell someone all ten of your kids are killed? How do you even say that? How do you say that having just heard what he was just told? There's an increasing terror to this. Uh, the Hebrew narrator here points to different sources it alternates between physical and undeniably supernatural causes. You go from Sabaeans to lightning to Chaldeans to a wind. And you have this alternate, alternating kind of storytelling that increases the impact. The back and forth strips away any mindset that these are just enemies revolting against his wealth. Job doesn't have time to think, well, let's prepare an army to go take back our goods and punish justly because we know he's a man from later in the book who's driven by justice for the afflicted. You, you can't, there's no justice for lightning in a wind fire. There's no justice for a windstorm that blows the house down. There's no plan. How do you even plan the funeral for all ten of your kids? Sorrow that we can point to as the fault of a specific person or enemy feels very different than that which comes from supernatural sources. There's a suddenness to the sorrow. The narrator sets the stage with tranquility. He does it to make the pain even more striking. Now, of course, we know that Satan has orchestrated it this way. His power and the permission of God have led him to choose this day when Job must have only been reflecting on God's goodness and the biggest worry in his heart at this moment was the sacrifices to prepare for his children. The messengers would have had to travel different distances to bring the news. But it all has been timed for the sorrow to be sudden. For there to be no time for Job to process it. It's almost staged to kill him with grief if possible. They recently have discovered, scientists, we, we've talked about people that die from a broken heart. They've actually recently discovered through MRI scans and other scientific research that's actually a real thing. You can be so overcome with grief that kills you. The inexplicable timing of this, the every direction nature of it, it comes from every compass point. The Sabaeans would have come from the north, or excuse me, from the south. The storms came from the west. That's when these kind of storms rise in this region of the world. The Chaldeans from the north and the wind from the east. And so he's hit from every direction. You ever have one of those moments in your life where you're like, it seems like it's coming from everywhere. It literally was coming from everywhere. There was nowhere for Job to turn. It's emphasized as well 
by the statement, I'm the only one to survive this motif. In grief, we are prone to say things like, where can I turn? I've been in spots in my life where I'm so overwhelmed with grief, my thought is, who can I call? It's the same guy, where can I go? Where can I turn? Physical places can become uh, a, a, a marker of further grief. You can, have, you can experience a terrible event in a specific location, and, and literally, it's like you can't go back to that place because it's to revisit it. This is in the man's home, and it's from every possible direction. Rejoicing is also forever marred. Satan has chosen a day to leave Job forever scarred by this. The very day of this event in Job's life is the birthday of his firstborn son. A day in this culture, the day of my firstborn son's birth, would have been celebrated almost above any other day. It meant that your heritage would go forth, your name would prolong, there would always be an inheritance. You don't know if God's going to bring you other children, but the fact that you have a boy and this is his birthday means everything. It's like, and, and, and I shudder to say this because I know some of you must have experienced this, it's like losing a dear loved one suddenly on like Christmas. A day that had always previously been a day of rejoicing. Now is going to be forever scarred with the worst pain he can imagine. He'll never struggle remembering this day. And so this is the test. <laughs> you can learn from Job from the armchair or from the wheelchair. And you'll get different lessons. And I think it's unkind of us to ever approach Job from the armchair. This is not an academic exercise. This is painful. And I just want to remind you, Job in some ways is a picture of Christ. We'll look at that as we study the book further. Job is blameless and upright. He, he is the wealthiest. And so Job the, the, has all the stuff, right? He's, he's the everything. He is as righteous as you can get as a human. We know he's not perfect. That was one. That was Jesus. But Job walks with God. He's a mature believer. Job has all the wealth. He's blessed him with family. Job is the extremes, but Job is also intended to be us. And so I would just remind you, it's not healthy or helpful for you to walk around saying, I'm no Job, but. But to rather find yourself in the story and see and learn from him. And so the first thing we see, I, I told you at the beginning, there's two dominant lessons that drive to to the ultimate truth this morning, that to love God, truly we must love him for who he truly is. And the first is his integrity. The accusation has been very, very clear. Does Job love you because of what he gets from you, God? In other words, is he true? Does his outside match his inside? And so let's strip away all the outside, peel it away like the layers of an onion, and we'll see what's really at the heart. And so the first thing that we see here is integrity. We see that Job is exactly who he has portrayed himself to be. He's not a hypocrite. He's not a liar. Job loves God. Now, I said last week or maybe two weeks ago that that's a terrifying prospect because I believe I love God. And yet, isn't it terrifying to consider that scenario I laid out to you, me sitting in Carline? It's a scary prospect. Yet Job has real integrity. I want to point out some things here, though. 
We've already read what Job is going to say. These amazing statements, um, his worship of God. We, we already know those. That cat's out of the bag. The end of that chapter is already read. But how do we process through this? And, and the first thing he tells us is that Job's sorrow is very real here. Uh, as we walk through Job's complaints, they're going to begin in, ver- in chapter 3. Actually, the first verse of chapter 3, Job will curse the day he was born. And that's an interesting statement and, um, because Jesus tells somebody else they should curse the day they were born. That's Judas. Job here, servant of God, curses the day he was born. It's the day his, you know, his son was born. It was a day of rejoicing. Now Job will come to that. But before we get to those complaints and, and chapter after chapter, that, that frankly, I think most of us will find ourselves far more in common with Job than what we see here in verse 21. And so people will ask, how does he say this? And, and I think it particularly becomes the reality when people only spend their time in the first two chapters or the last few chapters. And they don't walk with Job through his grief and his sorrow. That's really important. There's a language that grief produces. I was reading a fascinating paper this week by a secular sociologist. She does grief and trauma counseling, but this is what what she has learned. She's learned that there's a language to grief. And so the illustration I would give to you would be like this. The difference would be like you sitting in a classroom learning some foreign language. And that could be any kind, right? Anything from, from Spanish, or I took French, or German, or Russian, or, or, or even um, ASL, and, and any kind of other language. You sit in a classroom, and you learn it. You learn vocabulary, you learn grammar, you learn sentence structure, um, you, you learn style, you, you learn tone, um, and this is what you learn. And the difference would be between you learning about grief, sitting here this morning, and never having experienced it. It can become very academic to you. But take that same person and just pluck them up and drop them in the middle of Mexico City. Surrounded by nothing but non-English speakers. And see what their language looks like in six months. Right? Like, it's not a question. We all know the difference between the person sitting in the classroom and the person just soaking in it, marinating it, is going to be radically different. And here's the way deep grief works that that they're discovering. And, and I th- always find it fascinating because it's like people stumble upon what the Bible tells us anyway, right? But it's helpful. Thinking you know the vocab, thinking you understand the circumstances, and I'm not saying it's unhelpful. Clearly, it's helpful. And what they've discovered is going through seasons of intense grief, get this now, it will take you between one to three years to learn to speak the language of grief. And we say a language of grief? Yes, because as you process through your grief, you will begin to see how it touches every part of your life. And so how do I speak when someone asks how my day is going? Do they really want to know? And then sometimes they really want to know, but when you're grieving hard, you don't really want to tell. And how do you speak the language of grief on days that should be celebration? And how do you speak the language of grief when when everything seems to be fine and then it just shows up out of nowhere and hits you like a ton of bricks? How do you speak? And they say that it will take up to one to three years. And this is what I found most fascinating. And that was really helpful for me, to be honest with you. She says this, you do it best in a community. As you learn to speak grief with others who are speaking grief. Doesn't the Bible tell us to weep with those that weep? 
Doesn't God deal kindly with us, patiently with us, and not demand from us in the immediate? And so what we see from Job, I think, is true sorrow. And I think this is important because I want you to let you in on a secret. Some people argue that Job is able to say, naked I came from the womb, naked I'll go back, because he is some dispassionate man who isn't affected by this. But the Bible tells us something very, very different. We see a man in agony. And I, if there's any group I'd rage against, it would be people who find Job cold and so there are those though that try to diminish his sorrow and so i think the bible is helpful for us by telling us his sorrow job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped i've stood in a funeral home with parents looking at the prepared body of their infant I've been with a family in the waiting room downtown outside of intensive care when the doctors came out and told them there was no hope and they needed to come in and say goodbye. I was with my best friend and his family in the hospital when the whole family was told that he was gone. I have seen tears I've heard screams. I've seen people pass out, fall to the ground, run out of buildings. How do you express overwhelming grief? We see true sorrow here with Job, depth of agony, physical response. Personally, I've I've been standing up and had people tell me terrible news and all I need to do is I just got to sit down. And then on other occasions, I've been sitting down and heard, heard terrible news, and I just have to stand up and even pace or move. There's a moment of grief that just compels a physical response from you. And this is what we see from Job. It matches what we see from sorrow and grief. True grief wants to be expressed. Even in shock, we want to express our grief, but we can't seem to find the words. Job physically expresses his true sorrow in two cultural ways. He first of all tears his robes. These are the outer robes that indicate uh, position and power. And, and so there's been so much study done. Like, what is this history? And we see it throughout the Bible a number of occasions, tearing the robes. The priests are actually commanded to not tear their robes in certain uh, sorrowing situations because it would be such a natural response to just the rending of the robes. And so one is because it's a way of saying, I've lost all position. In other words, who I am, my very identity has been shredded by this. The other is that it's an exposure of the heart. It's a way of saying where this really hurts me is in my heart. And this garment then is a way of demonstrating my life from this point forward is shredded like my heart is shredded. And even if you were to take that garment and stitch it back together, you would forever see the scar, the seam of where it was rent. This grief has changed me, is what he's saying. He shaves his head. The shaving of the head, we are a little bit firmer about, and it was identification with the dead. It was a way of saying, my children are dead. I've died with them. This is a man in depth of sorrow. What comes out of him then are true cries. And so it's just stunning to us. Part of what I appreciate about Job is I have seen people in shock saying these words. 
I've been with people uh, sometimes days after a, a sudden loss or an intense grief or sometimes even seemingly in the moment, and I have seen people utter these words with no emotion. And quite frankly, they don't ring true to me. Now, God knows, and maybe they are. I leave that to him. But I want you to enter into the world of Job, and when I look at the Bible in totality, I see Jesus in great turmoil, unashamedly weeping in the garden, sweating great drops of blood, saying, not my will but yours, but if this cup, if you could take the cup, then take the cup. I don't find a father here dispassionately saying, naked I came from the womb, naked I return, blessed be the name of the Lord. I find a man through choked cries of grief clinging to truth and speaking it. These are words out of a broken heart, full of sorrow, full of agony. And the realness of the words exists because of the truthfulness of the sorrow and the ache. I love how Jerry Bridges puts it. In his book, Trusting God, Even When Life Hurts, he says it this way, our first priority in times of adversity is to honor and glorify God by trusting him. We tend to make our first priority the gaining of relief from our feelings of heartache or disappointment or frustration. Remember, this is not a test of faith to see if Job's faith is real. It is a proving by God in the face of cruel accusations that Job's love for God is genuine and real. During some pretty intense grief last year, I was Marco Poloing back and forth with a friend I had not spoken to in probably a decade or so. And so I don't know, I would actually it was one Saturday, I was grilling some hamburgers and just struggling with some very difficult things last year. And Marco Polo, and that's a, a kind of almost a video walkie-talkie thing back and forth, it said, oh, so-and-so has joined Marco Polo and it's their birthday. And Marco Polo helpfully says, you should wish them a birthday. So I said, why not? Wish them a happy birthday. And it just reconnected a friendship. And so I was sitting outside of my parents' house after my father had died. And I just confessed to this friend, I don't think I'm grieving well. I don't, I don't know that I'm handling this well. And I'm not sure what to do. And he said some very helpful things to me. And he said, maybe God's not testing your grief. Maybe God's not testing your capacity to grieve well, whatever that means. Maybe I needed to stop trying to grieve well and realize Jesus just wanted to be with me in my grief as a kind shepherd and sit with me and weep with me and that was enough. That was good. I'm going to tell you, that's some good stuff. That, like, that's some like pay somebody some money level truth. Is exactly what this legalist heart needed. So what do we cling to? God isn't afraid of Job's sorrow, his fears, his anger, his confusion and questions. I say that to you. He is not afraid of your questions, of your sorrow, your anger, your confusion. You know who is? Other Christians. He's not. God doesn't get blown off course. He's not off the throne because I'm angry and upset and scared. Because I can't stop crying, and then other times I think I'm supposed to cry, but I can't find a tear. Eric Ortland says it this way, 
What God wants from us in Job-like ordeals, inexplicable pain, is not to repent or grow, but simply to hold on to him. That's it. Now, we will probably say some foolish things along the way, just like Job does, of which we're later ashamed about in Job 42. But God will be gentle with us in our ordeal. His only requirement, his only requirement, is not to curse him in the process. The only true love for God is loving God for who he truly is. And so it's not just Job's integrity, but it's Job's theology. There's a lot that Job doesn't know about God, right? We absolutely, we have this fuller revelation, this stunningly fuller revelation that Job doesn't have. Now, now Job would know about creation, the creation story, the fall, the promise of a rescuer, the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3. You're all sinners. You're all wicked. I don't mean you, like, like God to us. So we all sinners, right? We're all wicked. We all deserve wrath and judgment. We can't save ourselves. The best we do is stitch together some fig leaves and then hide in some bushes and then blame everybody else. That's the best we come up with. That's our plan. Uh, And then try to be really good and prove to God how good I am. Like, that's our plan. That's like the worst plan in the world, right? You ever had somebody, they come up with a plan, you're like, that is a terrible plan. In the eighth grade, we have a science test. Wasn't really doing my homework or studying at this point in my life. Had a friend that wasn't either. We're like, how are we going to pass this test? And his plan was cheating, writing notes on a piece of paper. This is what we're going to do. And, and, and we'll pass it back and forth. You do half, I do half. I remember being like, that is a terrible plan. We got a terrible plan to solve our sin. And yet Genesis 3 tells us instead God has a, has a plan. And this has always been plan A. God wasn't shocked by the fall. This is always plan A. And his plan was I'm going to send my son to perfectly live a life on your behalf and never sin once and then to voluntarily, sacrificially die for your sin. He's going to pay the price, take God's wrath, my wrath for your sin on him so that if you will turn from your sin, repent, and believe in what Jesus has done, I'm going to save you and make you mine. That's the plan. Job would have known, at least proto-evangelium, that there will come a rescuer for you who will crush the head of the serpent and yet experience this blow, this bite from the serpent. Job at least would have known that. Job would have known of the fall of the, excuse me, of the flood. He would have known of God having a guy build a boat for a hundred years, wipe everybody else off the planet because they're wicked. And so God's a God of judgment, of wrath, but also a God of rescue and of love. And so Job would have known these things. Job would have known Tower of Babel, right? So everybody, we're going to find our own way to God. Oh, plan A doesn't work, fig leaves, bushes, and lying. Let's get plan B. We're going to show our power and our might, and we're going to ascend to that levels of heaven. God wants to make us gods too. Uh-uh, wrong. Nope, I'm going to disperse that mess. Job would have known lots of these things. Job would have understood sacrifice somehow. He would have understood sacrifice for sin, sacrifice that images something he would have grasped some of these things but job doesn't know lots of what we know job doesn't know the person in the name of jesus christ his belief would have been very simple i'm a sinner my only answer is in god my sin deserves wrath i look for a rescuer save me very simple but there's this truth that is central to his comfort and grief. There is a theological premise that echoes in his heart. And it frankly, what he says here becomes the theme of what God will say to him later. And it's this, God is in control and that is a good thing. 
Now this matters. This matters because the test of whether God loves God as God and not just the giver of good things is what's at stake. If the test has failed, the court case is lost, and that all happens if God doesn't love the true God. If Job can assign the losses of everything to someone or something other than God, if he can put a buffer in the way between him, his suffering, his grief, and God, then God is not in control, and then Job is free to hate whatever has hurt him. We see this all the time in criminal cases. A family member is stunned to discover that their spouse, their parent, their child is arrested for some horrific crime. You can read quotes about this in books and see quotes in news articles and in interviews, and they will say things like this, my, fill in the blank with whoever that is, my boy, my daughter, my girl, my husband, my, my wife, my neighbor even, they could never do that. They cannot conceive that this horrible thing could be done by the person that they love. When it is indisputable, DNA-level evidence and the like, that the person did the crime, there are still some who will live in denial. What they're revealing is that they didn't actually love that whole person, but only what they believe to be the truth about them. And they reject this part of them, because if we're all honest, this is what they're saying, I could never love someone who has done that horrible thing. People. Well-meaning people can't conceive of a God that works all things for his glory, including sovereignly over the evil acts of others. For God may permit, but he never does evil. So they come up with other doctrines. They come up with other excuses. Everything ranging from God is a master chess player, and he's like the masterest chess player ever, um, and he's playing all these people at the same time, And every once in a while, even the master chess player might lose. That's actually one conception of God that exists out there that purports itself to be Christian. Or that God doesn't know the future. Or God doesn't control what happened. He can strongly predict it, but he doesn't control it. Doesn't that give you great hope? He can strongly predict you'll go to heaven, but he can't control it. None of them are ever willing to take these to the logical, theological conclusion. Job does none of that. Instead, Job reveals his love for God is who God is and not primarily for what God gives. And so he clings to providence. What does he say here? Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Now you and I both know the active agent was Satan. But Job assigns his losses to God. God didn't do these evil things, and yet God clearly has permitted them, and God has clearly restrained Satan from what he could do. The emphasis here becomes what? Job doesn't sin. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So if I just said that and that offended you, this is one of those moments I joyfully, gleefully say, I'm happy because the Bible backs me up. I have not charged God or sinned against him in saying this. At all. He's not saying that God did the evil of the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, the lightning of the wind. He knows that none of this happens outside of God working his mysterious will, and he acknowledges God's right to be God. 
What is providence? The one definition, not mine, but I fully embrace this, is the providence of God is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. We know that God can control all natural things, right? He controls the waves of the sea. Just look at Jesus in the storm-tossed sea of Galilee saying, what are you afraid of? Peace be still. Poof! Glass. We know this. You ever prayed for a sunny day? You ever prayed for rain? Why? Because you were convinced that God is so sovereign over all things that he can control the weather systems and the storms and the rain and the sun. The harder one for people is what people think. So God can control what people think and what they even desire, what they will to do or what they will not to do. Absolutely, you actually have prayed for it. This is one really offends people. Well, then that's not a true God. See, God's, God's going to give me the total freedom to choose whatever I want to choose. I just want you to know the Bible's actually really clear. If you had that freedom, you always only ever choose what your nature is, and you all were born with a sin nature. So I'll tell you what you're always going to choose, sin. You. And the funny thing is, is we've prayed it. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So what are we actually praying for when we're asked God to move upon a judge, the president, or Supreme Court justices? Have you already begun praying and considering as the Supreme Court will consider cases that could largely overturn Roe v. Wade this year? Will you pray, God, would you move upon these people to make decisions that are in accord with your will and your glory? God, would you move upon our politicians, our government officials, our company business leaders, the wealthy in this land to care more about your holiness and righteousness than they care about their own wealth and power? Have you ever prayed that? What are you praying for? You're praying that God would change their minds. Why are we comfortable with his sovereignty there? but not when bad things happen. The truth is, Job clearly doesn't know why this has happened. He's actually going to spend most of his book saying, I don't know why this happened. This will be a struggle for him as he learns the language of grief for chapter after chapter after chapter. But Job is committed here to this truth about the God that he loves and that he does know. The first truth flowing from this heart that loves God is this truth. God, you're in control. It's not just his providence, it's the fact that God is right. Second reality about God and his providence is that good things are given by God and can be taken away. While Job is going to struggle a great deal with understanding the incomprehensible the inexplicable pain that he's experiencing, he is going to wrestle with that, and I'm thankful for that wrestling because I think it's the wrestling match of many people in intense grief and sorrow. And I think it's God's kindness to give us a book of that wrestling match. While he will wrestle with this, and ultimately even, God, do you really love me? Here, he humbly acknowledges that all of these things and people were gifts to be given or to be taken away. It's as close as we can get biblically to the suffering of Jesus. God is right in his control of all things. Jesus loves the Father like no one ever has or will. And in the face of incomprehensible suffering, 
like suffering that just blows our mind that Jesus is about to experience both in his court cases, his abandonment, his rejection of others, ultimately on the cross physically, emotionally, but also even on a spiritual level as somehow that blows our minds as theologians, the Father turns his face from the Son. Jesus says this in Luke twenty-two forty-two: Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Job's suffering was for us a lasting demonstration of the genuine love of a child of God for God. Jesus' submission to the Father's providence and rightness was also for us the perfect demonstration of love for unlovely people. Submission and suffering has always pointed to the worthiness of God. I love you more than all these gifts. Satan's accusation. Job is a gold-digging blessing seeker. That's why he loves you. Job's response, and all of his responses are going to declare this. No, I love God for who he is. And he is the God who gives. And he is the God who takes away. I just want to ask you kindly, gently. Does your grief put that on display? Now, now, before you go down the list of all the ways it means to grieve well, I just want to remind you of what my friend said to you. Don't put yourself in a test. I'm not asking you to put yourself in a test of all right responses all the time in grief. I'm simply asking you to embrace the truth. God loves you, and he's worthy of your love regardless of the suffering that comes into life. And your first priority is trust. And your heart may scream like mine has at times. God, I trust you. Help my trust. Do you know how many times I've said to God over the years of my life, I can't do this. God, you know I can't do this. All I can do is the next right thing. Do you know how deep that hole gets in grief? All I can do is just get out of bed. All I can do is go make a cup of coffee. All I can do is brush my teeth. All I can do is turn on somebody else reading scripture to me because I can't even see the page through the tears. All I can do is go pick up my kid. All I can do is just be here. That's all I can do. The next right thing is I trust him every moment of every second for the strength to do it. The only true love for God is loving God for who he truly is. As we journey deeper into the book of Job, I want to pause and ask you if you're willing to let the Bible tell you of who God is. Job will actually learn, he'll learn something, he'll learn to love God even more. And what God will say to Job consistently is, trust my providence. Job's response to that cry from God will be a deeper expression of actually what we see here. He has heard of God, but now he sees him. Job was moved from the armchair to the wheelchair. And he will learn that the lessons he learned in the armchair is exactly what he needs in the wheelchair. And it just drove him deeper into his heart. As we learn the language of grief, we must resist the temptations to let our feelings dictate who God must be. We must come to love God for who he is. As we navigate the new normal that suffering brings, we must look to prophets like Job who are steadfast. We'll see more endurance from this man, but for now, we see two things that are not sin. 
overwhelming grief and white-knuckled gripping the rope while you're hanging off the cliff. So he grips tight. And he says out loud the first truth that brings comfort. God's in control. And I trust him. Will you let the word speak into your life and give you truth about who God is so that you have a true love for who he truly is?